Searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pitch Please podcast. Today, I'm here with Varun Chanduk from Access to Success. Really excited to talk to you today, Varun. Maybe let's start with a little bit about yourself and what your role is at Access to Success. Absolutely. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm the founder of Access to Success, which is a Canadian not-for-profit that supports the development of future leaders with disabilities and assistive technology. Part of that is that we run ATS Labs, which is Canada's first accelerator for accessibility startups. So we provide unique workshops, programming, resources, and mentorship opportunities for startups serving people with disabilities, specifically designed to help those startups scale. That's amazing. And so maybe let's learn a little bit about your background. So how long have you been doing Access to Success? And what was sort of your journey that got you to where you are today? Well, I came to Canada in 2016 for my MBA from the University of Toronto. I landed in August 2016. And in September of that year, I launched Access to Success initially as a small student club. I have a couple of visibilities myself, just to set up a bit of context here. I have what's called Apes palsy, which is a form of partial paralysis in my left arm, and I'm hard of hearing. And when I came to the University of Toronto, I started Access to Success. Initially, to support Rockman, which is the business school at URC, Rockman MBA students with disabilities, and that's the part of our program which supports the development of future leaders with disabilities. So that part of Access to Success today support provides up to $90,000 in annual scholarships to MBA students with disabilities at four of Canada's top business schools. The other part of it, ATS Labs, happened because, as I said, I'm hard of hearing. And ever since I realized I'm hard of hearing, it's been my dream to, in the future, have smart contact lenses that would use artificial reality to give me live captioning whenever somebody in front of me speaks. And I don't have the technical chops to pull that off. But in the course of my work with Access to Success, I met a lot of entrepreneurs in Canada who were working on a lot of other similar dreams. And those entrepreneurs would tell me how they're facing challenges, they're facing questions, and they're having trouble finding the answers to those questions and those challenges. So that's where the idea for BTS Labs stemmed from. I realized that, okay, I can't build that spot contact lenses, but I can't help these other entrepreneurs working on these other dreams. Super cool. So ATS or access to success. Am I okay to call it ATS? Well, we'll use access to success, but it started as a student club based around like people with similar interests in helping create more accessible solutions and, and innovating and accessibility. Did you... When starting Access to Success, have you always sort of wanted to start your own thing or did this sort of, you stumbled into it through this club? Not at all. There was not any intention. There was no deliberate intention to create something like that in the beginning. 
In fact, when I applied for my MBA, I didn't even disclose that I have a disability. And prior to that point, I had never worked in disability at any point in my life. But there was one moment which changed things for me. So when I started my MBA, we have what's called the orientation week, which is a week's worth of activities at the beginning of your program. And there was a lot of focus on diversity and inclusion at Rotman. But I noticed that the topic of disability was not even mentioned at that point. So I, while attending the orientation week, there was a panel event on diverse perspectives. And I remember an alumni was there, that alumni was the founder of the LGBTQ student club at Rotten. And one of the things that he said was that if you see the need for a change around here, you're never going to have a better time than now to act on that change. And that line stays with me to this day. It's a line that I repeat to a lot of other people when they ask me questions around this world. So that line stayed with me and I took that line and I went to Batman's administration and I shared my observation with them that you have a lot of very well-meaning emphasis on diversity and inclusion, but what about disability? And they said, that's a very good point. What do you want to do about it? That's how I fell into it. I didn't think that it would fall on me, but when they asked, what do you want to do about it? I was like, hey, maybe I can actually do something about it. So from there, it just snowballed into something bigger and bigger every year. That's amazing. And so, you know, there's sort of this moment of inspiration. Didn't even necessarily force you to become an entrepreneur. It, it sort of said, hey, you're passionate about this challenge. You were inspired by some words that helped you start to think about, could I bring people together? And so it started as a club around the topic. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. So it started as a club where you're, what, six, seven years now? Uh, Access to Success has been around. Give us like the background on how this started out and what the first early days and weeks might have looked like. And it stems from my own personal experiences with disability. My hearing loss was never visible, but my herbs palsy, which is a form of partial paralysis, was a visible disability. So growing up, I had the usual, unfortunately, far too common experiences of getting bullied, getting teased, all of that. When I got access to internet back in the day, I used to look at if there were successful business leaders, disabilities, because I had very average ambitions and just wanted to know if it's possible to have a regular corporate career with a visible disability. And the people who would come up in those searches would be Richard Branson, whom I had nothing with common with, and a lot of artists and athletes and people like that. So there was nobody for me to look up to. And that's sort of where it started from. We wanted to build a pipeline of future leaders with disabilities who others could look up to, others like me could look up to. And we found that we had a captive audience right there of MBA students who were on track to become future leaders. And we knew that there was nothing in anywhere in the world because we did the research. There was nothing anywhere in the world supporting MBA students with disabilities. So that's how the idea started initially in the early days, just like any other initiative. It was a small student club in the beginning. So it was a very scrappy. I recruited the initial team by barging into one of the different classrooms of my entire 350 people cohort and making a quick two minute presentation and telling people I want to do this and I'm looking for help. And a bunch of people signed up. 
And so did access to success for you start as something that was bringing together other people with disabilities visible or not? Or was it open to anyone that was equally interested and passionate about helping create a change in this space? So it was designed to support people with disabilities and part of that support is allies. Part of that support is awareness. So in fact, it was a circuitous but very related path to going from that student club for supporting students to ATS labs. And part of that is related to the question that you asked, which is when we started thinking about how do we get people interested in disability, we realized that we needed to make disability cool. We needed to make it a topic that wasn't going to make people feel guilty, but it's going to make people feel excited. And that's how we came across the idea of inclusive design and startups. And we wanted to take the idea that accessibility can actually benefit everyone. And there is a lot of really cool technology that has roots in accessibility and it benefits everyone. And we started designing conferences around that. So we held a couple of massive conferences at Rockman and they were attended by a lot of people, a lot of my classmates, many of whom, the majority of whom did not identify as having a disability. And to this day, I have friends who attended those conferences, who to this day come across something online and they share that with me that, hey, this reminds me of that conference that you organized. So that's actually where I started meeting the startups that ultimately, in fact, ended up participating, participating in ETS Labs as well. That's amazing. And a really inspiring story. And I think you're spot on where the allyship is such an important part. Maybe before we talk more about access to success, I maybe would just love to learn a little bit more of your own lived experiences and frustrations, whether it be with like schooling, living with some of these disabilities and some of the challenges you faced helped you become inspired to start to create this change. What are some of the challenges that you grew up with or started seeing maybe even just once you came to do your MBA that you were facing that were the points of frustration? There's challenges that stem from intentional behavior and challenges that stem from unintentional behavior of my peers or whoever I was working with and challenges that stem from mismatch between my experiences and the environment. And I'll explain what that means. Yeah. The first part, intentional behavior. Let's say when, back when I was in India, I was invited for an interview for a job that would have been absolutely perfect for me. That job description could have been written to me, but the interview was on a phone, on the phone. And I've never been able to speak on the phone because I lip read or I rely on live captioning. And and in there, the interviewer basically proceeded to chew me out for not being able to understand what he's saying on the phone. In Canada, there was a situation where it was an interview with a very large financial services company, one of the biggest in Canada. Similar situation, they asked for a phone call, but in Canada, I had drummed up enough courage to ask for an accommodation. So I asked for a video interview, explained why, and they go, as a matter of policy, we don't really do video interviews and our first round of interviews, but let me see what I can do. Long story short, four weeks of 
back and forth later, I basically just received an automated rejection email. That's the deliberate intentional stuff. And intentional stuff, people mean well, but sometimes you just end up having uncomfortable experiences simply because of the nature of visibility. Well, you know, you're in a group and you misunderstand something and you say something unintentionally and everybody around you laugh. So over time, sometimes it adds up. Other times you just end up developing the thick skin because of it. You develop a sense of humor. On what sides are sometimes a defense mechan- mechanism to deal with it. So extra carpets, it's not all bad, obviously. The last part, what I mentioned, the mismatch between my experiences and the environment. So as I said, I literally which meant that in a world of COVID and face masks, I was basically deaf. So I often say to my friends, if COVID had happened five years ago, life had been even more difficult for me because five years ago, light captioning didn't exist. And thank God for light captioning and light captioning apps. Because of that, I was still able to have conversations when I went to the grocery store and when I had to run errands or when I had to back to this range. It's not perfect, but at least it enabled me to continue living my life to a certain extent in a way that was similar to life before COVID. Thank, thanks for sharing that. I mean, the unintentional and in, intentional gaps in the world around us sometimes aren't always clear. Sometimes people just need to also work harder to work around them. I think as a moment of vulnerability, even when I reached out for this podcast, Varun, right? I'm new to the world of trying to do these virtually. Historically, like I had mentioned, I was trying to do them in person here. I work at Microsoft where we've got, I like to think, a very amazing, diverse set of tools for accessibility and inclusion. And even with that awareness, I was using a platform that I discovered that seemed to be useful for like front to back podcast recording. And even though at work, I'm used to using Teams that enables live transcripts and meeting notes, it unintentionally, I didn't realize that this platform that I was using didn't have that capability. I thank you for pointing it out. Maybe the interesting learning for me is I think when you did, I automatically caught myself and understood the need. Maybe that wouldn't be the same for everyone who isn't as exposed to it as I'm fortunate to be at work. But I think it comes back to the point of why you started Access to Success, which is not necessarily just startups building solutions to help increase diversity, access, and inclusion, but also for startups just building other tools to be thinking about building these features in. And so it's interesting because I might even, I don't know if they'll even respond, but I'm going to probably start a thread with the platform that I was using for my podcasts. And if you're okay with it, I'd love to connect you on and point out this gap in what they are building. And I, we have the tools and the technology to enable a feature like that moderately easy. Like it might, even as I'm speaking, the words maybe aren't perfect on your end, but it can get further down the path to something that's better 
and more inclusive by design. So thank you for helping. To your point, maybe years ago, you wouldn't have been as open to just expressing that. It sounds like you built up the courage to do that a few times and the other people on the other side weren't as accommodating. Thank you for being super accepting of the fact that I might have missed that in the initial. And I'm glad we were still able to proceed and have a dialogue today because this is a super awesome. Mike, I got to thank you actually for being so open to this and instantly agreeing to host this over Zoom, which was live captioning. I'm generally very appreciative of that whenever people take that opportunity and change things around instead of looking at it as an inconvenience. So thank you for making this platform, making this conversation accessible. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's funny, an interesting insight for anyone podcasting. I use Teams regularly, which has these features. The challenge I found when trying to do podcasts over Teams is it doesn't allow you to export high fidelity audio separately. So I started looking for other platforms. Obviously, it's not purposely built for podcasting, so that would potentially make sense. It, it does great recording meetings, but when you're recording podcasts, it's easier to isolate people's audio. And um, so I sought out for other options. And so uh, interestingly enough, we're using Zoom right now. I think it's good that all these tools exist and equally from my perspective, like obviously, yay, I love Microsoft, but I'm equally open to using what works for other people because sometimes you don't know what someone's used to or is easier for them. So thanks for continuing the dialogue. Maybe start diving in to learn a bit more about access to success. While normally we talk to startups, you're oddly in between being a startup, less than seven years of building this, but you equally empower other startups. And so Varun, Every time we do this, I ask everyone for their best elevator pitch. So your pitch, please. Access to success supports the development of future leaders with disabilities and assistive technology. That includes ETS Labs, which is Canada's first accelerator for accessibility startups. Instead of repeating my old points, I'll just add that over the three cohorts that we've run so far, we've had 30 startups participate in our program across those 30 startups. They've raised over $12 million in total equity and non-dilated funding. They've generated over $2 million in revenues, and they've benefited over 50,000 people with disabilities to date. So there's a lot of demand for this. There's a lot of impact that we're seeing from this initiative for sure. That's amazing. And so you said there's 30 startups that have gone through the accelerator. So there's access to success and there's access to success labs. Help me understand the difference between the two and how people should think about leveraging each. So we have the access to success fellowship which supports MBA students with disabilities. We have ATS labs, which supports startups. So it's essentially two arms, two initiatives to pillars within the broader organization of access to success. Got it. And how big is access to success? as an all-up organization. I know you're the founder, but I imagine you're wearing a lot of hats, but how many people are, are on the team? How big is Access to Success? So it varies based on what's going on at the time of the year. On average, we usually have our five board members who all contribute in some volunteer capacity or the other, and we have up to three to four people at any given point of the year, depending on what's going on. That's amazing. And, and the 
small but mighty team. Um, generally, how many startups are you working with and what's sort of the makeup of those startups? Are they people building assistive technologies or are they startups just trying to get perspective to include assistive technologies? So we run one cohort a year of different startups each and demand is high. On average, we usually receive over double the number of applications than we have spots. Those 10 startups are all startups that are creating a product or a service for people with disabilities, either directly or indirectly. What that means is that they may be creating a B2C product, an assistive device, for example, or they may be creating a B2B product, for example, a platform that helps companies make their websites more accessible. So that's indirect benefit to people with disabilities. Startups that go through our program are very varied in nature of what they are doing. It ranges from, obviously, as I said, products and services, but also we have hardware, software, hybrid. We have mechanical products, AI products, deep tech products, a mix of AI and hardware, AI software embedded in hardware. We have hearing tech, neurotech, care tech, age tech, wearables, platform businesses. So it's a wide spectrum. These startups are from all over Canada and usually maybe about a couple of international startups as well. And in size, they all at least have an MVP. About half are usually post-revenue, others are pre-revenue because some of them are deep tech, so they have a long lead time to getting commercialization, but they're always at the very latest seed stage. We usually won't work with a startup that's beyond seed stage because we try and work with startups that we can actually help and beyond seed stage, there's only so much that we can do. And what type? of tools and support do you offer to these 10 um, startups a, a year as part of the cohort? So we are very focused on providing resources that are specifically designed with accessibility startups in mind, and we don't duplicate the efforts of the other amazing accelerators that already exist in Canada. What that means is that we'll have, for example, programming on inclusive design, co-creation, customer acquisition in the disability space, marketing to people with disabilities, Health Canada and FDA processes, revenue models and pricing models that are unique to the space. And there are a lot of jaggeries in the space, a lot of granular complexities in the space that don't exist outside of the space. For instance, a usual advertising models on social media don't usually work in assistive tech space. Your usual revenue models where you want to charge your customer may not work in this space. So we try to help companies figure out alternative revenue models. Um, the beauty of this programming is that it's all delivered by successful later stage accessibility entrepreneurs themselves or world-renowned accessibility evangelists, people who've been in this space for a long time, or in some shape or form, have a deep understanding of accessibility entrepreneurship. So it brings people who understand what's it like to be in the shoes of the founders going through our program. Over the 
course of the three cohorts that we run so far, we have had over 130 speakers and mentors from over seven countries come in to talk about their experiences. And each one of those speakers is specifically selected to deliver content on a topic that we know is their specialty. So it's a mix of master classes, workshops, mentorship that help with a bunch of things that are very different for this space. Can you talk to me? You mentioned a few examples and I'd love to learn. And generally people build a pricing model where they charge the end customer. That doesn't always work. Traditional advertising and marketing paid scenarios don't work. Can you pick one of these and just like help me understand it a little bit better? For sure. People with disabilities sometimes may not have the financial means to pay for assistive tech, especially when it's new assistive tech and very expensive. So one go, one session that we did was hosted by the chief revenue officer, the then chief revenue officer of the startup out of Denmark called Be My Eyes, which is one of the most well-known startups in the vision map space. And they provide on-demand volunteers for people with vision loss. So somebody with vision loss can call up a volunteer using Be My Eyes and the volunteer can help them with a vision-based, a visual activity, like, for example, checking the price of the product while they're in the grocery store or counting cash. So BMIs has kept this product free for people with disabilities, and they tried out a whole lot of different opportunities for revenue generation until they landed on something that stuck. And what stuck was they ended up charging corporate clients from providing BMIs as a feature for the customer care desk. And I thought that was outstanding. I thought it was brilliant. It's a somewhat common approach of having a B2B revenue stream for a B2C product, but how they use the same B2C product but monetized it for a B2B channel was extraordinary. So that's an example of how your revenue models are somewhat unusual very, very often in this space. And so sorry to interrupt, just to kind of talk about that for a second. So that's about how do you take your solution and get organizations to pay for it and include it as an accessibility feature for their customers. And so you actually start to figure out who is and isn't serious about accessibility because you start to help them build capabilities that they themselves are looking to potentially do. But instead of having to do it themselves, they can leverage these texts, integrate them and benefit their wide audience of customers. Is that sort of what you're saying there? Exactly. That's very successful. Thank you. No, I just wanted, it's fascinating because to your point, it is very different than how traditionally business models are built. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but we can go back to the marketing bit now, I think is where you want to go, right? Not at all. Yeah. So on marketing, let's say one of the startups that went through ADS Labs is called Imaginable Solutions. They have a product called Guided Hands. I know and Leanne well. Oh, you know her. Great. Yeah. So you know Leanne. Um, so a product like that, Guided Hands helps Somebody with an upper limb mobility use that product to draw again or use an iPad or use a phone. It's essentially a gamble that people with upper limb limitations can use. But a product like that, people are 
not as likely to buy it off of a social media ad as they are if it's recommended by an occupational therapist to them. They're an occupational therapist or they're physiotherapist. So Liana has to work with occupational therapists and get them to buy into a product and recommend it to that occupational therapist's patients. So your usual marketing channels don't always work in scenarios like that. So it's more about figuring out the influencers in it. Are there constraints in paid advertising? Obviously, when you're doing paid advertising, there's a bunch of interests, personas, variables about an individual. Is that different? And excuse my unawareness around this, but is that different when you're trying to target groups that may have disabilities with a product? Like I can imagine that potentially being a barrier because not everyone necessarily identifies or doesn't have public identifiers. So actually finding your customer might be more difficult. Is that a, is that a thing? It depends on the product. For instance, another startup that went through a program. Now I actually don't know if they do paid advertising or not, but I imagine that they could if they wanted. It's called Beeline Reader. It's based out of the U.S. And what they do is provide a plugin which makes text more readable for people with dyslexia, ADHD, and other similar disabilities. It's used by publishers. It's used by text publishers, by learning management solution providers, customers like that, so that it's directly available to thousands of end users via those corporate clients. Something like that. In theory, you could promote online because there is no cost to adoption. If I want to try it out, there's not a lot of cost. And when I say cost, I don't necessarily mean financial cost. I also mean time and effort required for me to try it out because it's just a plugin. But if I'm trying to solve something like Liana's guarded hands or a wheelchair, or for example, another startup that went to our pilot project back in 2019 called Grace Mobility, which attaches wheelchair sensor for powered wheelchairs to allow powered wheelchair users to reverse safety. If it's a product like that, which is not only very complicated, but also very personal, very critical, then there are just far too many unknowns for a person to trust an advertisement. They would much rather have it recommended by a trusted care provider than something off of social media simply because there are a lot of well-meaning but not very useful quote-unquote accessibility products out there. Super interesting to, to learn about this space and it sounds like you're obviously able to, you have more demand than you can handle. You support 10 startups a year. Is the constraint just time? Do you have available resources at scale for people that maybe aren't able to make it the cut for the 10 that you're able to support a year? How does that work? It's resource constraints. Um, right now, I'm still doing this alongside of full-time professional career staff. That I bring on whenever I'm running a cohort, they all are as employees. I'm standing this for no pay. So there is time and people constraints. It's a good question because 
we are at a stage where we have more than enough operational budget to run a couple of cohorts and keep running these virtual cohorts. But now I'm getting to a stage where I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I make this bigger? How do I make go from this being a purely virtual initiative to maybe a hybrid model? How do I do more cohorts per year? Because the demand is there. There's, I work with accelerators, disability tech accelerators all over the world. So I know for a fact that in Canada and North America, there's a tremendous amount of demand for a program like this. Maybe a weird question. How do you monetize here to be able to create the revenue streams that let you impact more people? We are a not-for-profit. That doesn't mean that we can't, in fact, we should be monetizing it. We haven't yet fully. There are a couple of things that we're doing to monetize. One is deeper service model. So, for instance, we partnered with the Mass Discovery District to provide support to the winners of the $100,000 Mass CIBC Inclusive Design Challenge. And that was the FIFA service model. So we have that capacity, that expertise to be able to provide that kind of programming and resources to other partners. The second piece is potentially monetizing access to EDSX programming itself for the startups that go through our program. It's something that I've been toying around with, but I haven't yet taken a decision on. It's probably something I'm going to come to a head this year, but we'll see where that goes. In terms of how we find ourselves right now, it's entirely corporate partnerships, sponsorships, and the kind of fee-for-service model that I talked about. It's an interesting challenge, right? You're trying to continue to innovate and touch more lives. It makes sense that it's non-for-profit, but you need... Even to run a non-for-profit, you need resources. Is the content and materials that are available through Access to Success, you said today it's mostly virtual or only virtual, you'd like to go hybrid. Are some of those resources, like they could scale with the right support? Yeah, it's a very good question. That's one of the things that we've been toying around with. There are a couple of intricacies there though. One is that when we run ATS labs and we bring in the kind of speakers that we do, they let us record those sessions on one condition, that those recordings never be published. And that's for a reason. It allows them to speak very freely in a closed cohort, a hand-picked cohort. So in theory, you could invite speakers and make it open to the public and just dilute a little bit the quality of the responses that those speakers share. But then the result is that the learnings are a little bit diluted. The truth is that for people in the innovation ecosystem who might be listening to this, a very common misconception is that do you really need an accessibility accelerator? The challenges that an accessibility startup is going to face is not going to be that much different from another tech startup or another regular startup. So on the surface, that's true. It's when you start diving into the details that those intricacies arise and the answers to those intricacies. So far, what I've heard from mentors that those are answers that they would only share in closed rooms versus publishing that online for public consumption. I don't know. Yeah, we got to figure that one out. I don't have the final answer on that yet. It's interesting because the cohorts are generally 
assistive technologies and accessibility solutions that are going through your cohort, but I almost like, I don't know how it would work, but it feels like the insights and lived experiences that you and the broader network that you're creating have are the ultimate feedback loop not just for accessible solutions and assistive devices but you're the ultimate feedback loop and maybe there's a way to monetize that for every other startup being born and every other big company designing their own products right you've almost got this like thing and this bridge of a network of advisors testers that so should be so valuable to so many accelerators and startups as well it's a super cool it's a super cool space do you or the mentors or whoever's involved in access to success also speak to advise coach startups that are building something completely different but looking for advice in this area is there a way for them to seek advice from you not necessarily startups but corporate clients yes all the time we have good companies reach out to us all the time we've done workshops we've done consulting programming for them like customized consulting programs for them these kind of conversations happen all the time the one that you and i are having right now startups typically usually have more than enough going on if they're not in the accessibility space so we haven't had regular startups reach out to yet as just yet except in one interesting scenario that i can't go into the details just yet. this idea sparked in my mind when we had this dialogue around the platform that i had shared and it was like there's this advisorship that i'm sure they're not intentionally missing but just pointing out the potential gaps in the thinking is like such a valuable component of the development process. Hey, I'm learning as much from this conversation, if not more as hopefully our audience. So thank you. You've given me a lot to think about for sure. Now, Varun, when you think about sort of the next six or 12 months, you've obviously got lots of ambitions to help scale this out and support the continued community alongside your day job. And obviously that's a challenge in itself. What do you see as like the roadmap or ambitions for your next six to 12 months at Access to Success? There are a few things going on in the six to 12 months, I call that short term. If there is a project that I'm working on, which would, if successful, publish the world's first database of investors interested in investing in accessibility tech, which is a constant challenge for startups founders to keep starting that research from scratch, keep trying to find the same people because there's nobody to turn to who has all of those answers, who has that entire network in one place. So we are trying to create that database in one place where they'd be able to filter for investors by interest, by geography, by type of products that those investors would be interested in, the stages and so on and so forth. So that's something that I hope to be able to do release this year in fact. Fingers crossed on that one. The second one is doing more beyond our structured ETS Labs programming. So I 
ABS Labs runs Accelerator, that cohort runs once a year, three months at a time. And as I said, that's a resource constraint. But I have conversations with accessibility entrepreneurs every single week. And these are entrepreneurs who may not even be in the program. And, and I try to help them out regardless of whether they are, they've been in the program with, or whether they're even going to apply to the program. So there's just so much pent up demand for that support. So I want to try and start doing sort of monthly meetups, hybrid meetups. I look at certain locations. So that's another thing that again stems from what founders are telling me they want. For instance, one thing that we did last year was FUP nights. And FUP nights invited our cohort members to come and share about their efforts, their mess ups. Yeah. And it was massively popular. It was a turning point in the bonding between the participants and the cohort. I want to replicate that for the broader accessibility entrepreneurship community. It's not necessarily that very topic, but that kind of programming, just free for all, regardless of whether they're going through the program. The last piece is taking what ADS Labs is doing right now and making it much, much bigger. So that's a piece that I've been working on for a while. Monetization is one aspect of it, but just turning that into a much bigger presence than what we have right now. Hopefully I'll be able to share more about that towards the end of not next year. Yeah, that'd be amazing. And I forgot to ask, does Access to Success have a physical space that you no. run this out of? You mentioned virtual, so no. So you leverage other people's spaces and, and to host events. Everything that we have done so far is entirely virtual. We've used to do conferences, of course, at Access to Success. Those were in person, but ATS Labs so far has been entirely virtual. We hope to change that this year with some hybrid events. That's amazing. I'd love to even connect you with some people who I think if you'd like to use the space or put on an event, I know that you're local here in Toronto. And so maybe we could collaborate on one in the near future, or at least I can attend one of your hybrid events. I'd love to do that. Absolutely. You'd be very welcome to. And yeah, those conversations are already happening. They're very early, so I can't share names just yet, but hopefully this will be amazing. Help needed. If someone's listening and they want to help access to success or the startups you work with to succeed, what are call to actions that I can help share on your behalf or we can include? Three things that I would ask anyone who is listening. One, if you know of accessibility startups in this space, please tell them about access to success and ETS cards. I'd love to talk to them. The second is just remember a few of the things that we talked about. Accessibility is not a visibility problem. Accessibility is an everybody problem. We, there's a lot that we didn't go into, for example, around inclusive design, but if you start looking into that, remember we made inclusive design a focus because we wanted to make accessibility cool. So I highly encourage you to look up inclusive design a little bit. You'll find it very interesting. I promise you that. And the third and last thing is that if you've got time to spare and you want to volunteer with a small not-for-profit trying to make a big impact, please do reach out to me. I'm always happy to always excited to talk to people interested in contributing a bit of the time.
That's amazing. So we'll try to include in the show notes a link to be able to find out more about access to success and apply. Maybe there's something you can share where we can drive people to something to learn their one-on-one and get ramped up on the understanding of inclusive design. And the third is anybody out there that thinks they could be a great mentor to this small but mighty high impact area around enabling accessibility startup will get you connected as well. Varun, there's one last thing that I get everybody that comes on the show to do. It's just for fun and I'm kind of keeping tabs. Eventually, maybe I'll give a prize. I realized that it's very difficult to say pitch please podcast multiple times fast without getting kind of spun up. Um, whenever you're ready, I'll keep count. But if you can say pitch please podcast, pitch please, I, I don't even think I can get past three. But let's see how many you can get. It makes it a fun way to link all the podcasts together, get everyone listening to see where they rank. Whenever you're ready, Varun, in your court, Pitch Please podcast as many times fast as you can. <laughs> that is hilarious. All right, here we go. Let's see how many. Pitch Please podcast, Pitch Please podcast, Pitch Please podcast, Pitch Please podcast, Pitch Please podcast. All right, there we go. Six. You were, you were on a roll there. Six is actually very good. I love it. And it gives me a little good reason to laugh. So Varun, thank you so much for today's dialogue. I genuinely enjoyed it. Thank you for helping point out my blind spot, even in initially reaching out to organize this of something I didn't realize was missing and I need to be considerate of. Any closing thoughts or words on your side before we wrap up today? Mike, I just first want to say thank you for making this conversation accessible, for inviting me, for having me, for having such an delightful, insightful conversation for giving me so much to think about. And for the listeners, I'll just repeat what I said in the beginning. My own starting point is to see the need for a change around here. There's never going to be a better time to act on it than now. Thanks, Mike. So inspiring. Thank you, Varun. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in again to Pitch Please Podcast. Catch you on the next episode. Pitch Please, a BlueMex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BlueMex.io to join us on Discord.